Welcome to Parkview. Every uh, time we get ready to come out with the worship band and everything, I, I know you probably think that like we're just uh, we just wake up early on Sunday morning. And we can't wait to get out here, but sometimes these musicians, you know, they don't get up early very often. So sometimes we have to do something to fire them up a little bit to get ready to come out. And of course we pray, but uh, we adopted this thing that we do around here backstage before we come out. Uh, I don't know a year ago or so, where we started pretending like we were going to go out and play football. So we start, you know, we start clapping and we get everybody in and we get our hands in and then somebody yells, what time is it? And the answer is church time. And when we do this three times, well, we, we done this so many times now and some of them have kids that are involved in it. And John and Kim have a four-year-old son named Gibson who's gotten really good at being our caller. I just wanted to show you a video from a couple of weeks ago when Gibson called it out. time to do this here, right, Gibson? I think they need to stand up and start clapping, don't you? Come on, bring it up. Get your hands in. All right, call it out. Are you ready now? Come on. It's church time, baby. I'm telling you right now. Um, man, oh man, oh man. So uh, we've been doing this thing around here uh, to kind of get ready for the new season, because it really is the new season around here for us. Uh, and I've never been more excited about a new season of ministry than I think I am right now. I mean, I've been doing this for 29 years full time, and I just got to tell you, I'm more excited about what's going to get ready to happen this, this fall than any time I ever have, because we're getting ready to do this story thing, and, and um, you know, we, we know that a lot of people are going to want to come and find out how the Bible all goes together. I just believe that God is going to blow things open. Uh, you might as well plan on right now me already starting to gripe at you. Like You might as well start now griping at you to get out of the 11 o'clock service because I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to come and be a part of this. And I'm excited about it. And we have 300 new host homes signed up to do small groups. I'm excited about that. And you know what? You can still do it. There's a form out there on the way out. I, we, uh, I was in L.A. this last weekend dropping off my kid for school, um, and uh, we met with Saddleback. And um, I, we were talking to the chief of staff at Saddleback, their, uh, their executive pastor there, and he was talking about their small groups. And we're like, How? you know, they have more people in small groups than they have in attendance on the average weekend. I mean, everybody in their church plus some are involved in a life group. And we said, how did you do that? And he said, well, one day Rick Warren walked in and said, hey, um, we're going to sign up 3,000 new small groups this year instead of 300. And they were like, well, how are we going to do that? And he said, well, the, the problem with small groups, the problem with life groups is what we're doing is we're looking for somebody to teach them and to lead them. What if we took that all away and we just said, hey, if you've got uh, you know, a DVD player, you can invite some people over to your home, play the DVD, make some brownies, 
they're in California, so I don't know what kind of brownies they make there, but, but make some brownies and hang out. And they did, and they started 32, instead of 300, they started 3,200 life groups that year, and they really beat it up. So we decided to do the same thing. You can do a life group for your own family or for your own neighbors, or you can open it up to people in the church or whatever, but if you can play a DVD and make some kind of refreshments, all you got to do is invite some people in. And we're not asking you to do it for 31 weeks. Just do it uh, for the 10-week season run up to Christmas as we do the first act of this thing. We just really believe that God is going to do some amazing things. I was in L.A. because Becca goes to school out there, and we were dropping her off, getting her moved in, ready to go for her sophomore year. And she goes to Eastside Christian Church in Fullerton, California, which is where my friend Gene Apple preaches. Some of you remember Gene from being on the teaching team at at Willow Creek. Um, Ironically, Eastside Christian Church is where I did my internship when I was in college 30 years ago. As a matter of fact, it was 30 years this summer. would have been right around now when I was driving away from L.A. after having spent the summer at this amazing church getting a vision for what God could do with one of my mentors, Ben Merrill, who uh, uh, is just a phenomenal preacher, really stretched my brain back then. It was a church of 3,000 back in uh, 1982, and, and I went out to be a part of that, and I went out to learn from that. And what's so cool is that now my daughter is a part of that same church, and that church is not only still thriving, but they're getting ready to relocate now after 30 years on that location. They're getting ready to relocate in 10 weeks to a new place, and God's just going to do amazing things. And it's just cool to me to think that here we are 30 years later, my daughter's in that church volunteering and, and, and being mentored and, and finding you know, fellowship with a church that's still going 30 years later. On Sunday night and Monday, as I mentioned, we met with uh, Bill and Denise and I met with some of the leaders of, of Saddleback to talk about partnering together with the 6,000 churches that we represent. And, and it's just amazing. All I can say is it's church time because I believe that God is going to do some amazing things as we all work together. And it's just encouraging to me. And, and what I want you to understand that it, it's church time for you, okay? And you need to come ready to play. Don't think that Christianity is a spectator sport because it's not. This is about everybody being involved and being on the team. This is not about adding God to your life, you know, so that your life can be a little bit better. This is about commitment, it's discipline, it's training, it's about being a a soldier, being a a person that's playing on the team, not just a spectator. In LA, I drove by this sign, and I just took a picture of it because I thought it was funny. Easy aerobics, okay? What good does that do? I mean, I just imagine them, you know, one, two, one... Oh, my heart rate's up to 70. I better slow down. I mean, does, does that do anybody any good? There, there's no such thing as easy aerobics. There's no such thing as easy Christianity. All right? You need to jump in. You need to do something. We've been talking about it from the standpoint of what kind of ink should we wear. If we had a tattoo for the things that, that Christianity stood for, what would that be? The first week we talked about lips because the way the church started in the beginning, one of the foremost things that a Christian ought to do is share their story. And I'll talk a little bit more about that today with the mission from God that I'm talking about. But you have a lips tattoo. The second week, we talked about a tribal bracelet tattoo that would show that you're a part of a group, that you're a part of a tribe, that we all belong in community, and that the early church met together like this and in each other's homes so that they could be a part of something together. Last week, Casey talked about the crown and how we're the king, we're with the king, and we're supposed to be with the king every day, and some of you have been with the king in his word every day this week, and it's been a long time or maybe new to you, and I hope that you're going to keep that going because that ought to be one of our tattoos. Today it's hands, because the hands represent the fourth one, the last one I'm going to do. It's the hands. I found this tattoo online. I loved it, because it's the cross and the hands, and you don't know whether or not those are the hands of Jesus, 
or those are our hands because it really doesn't matter one way or the other. St. Teresa said, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks on compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses the world. It's up to us. We have to have the hands. As I thought about the church in California 30 years later, it made me wonder what this place is going to be like 30 years from now. It made me wonder if there's any high school or college age young people in our congregation right now that 30 years from now will have kids that are involved in Parkview that are serving and volunteering and changing the world at Parkview. That's what made me, will, will this place even exist? Because Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He did say that. But that's the church universal. It's not the church specific. Ironically, when we get to the book of Revelation, by the time we get done with our 31 weeks to the story and we get to the book of Revelation, you'll find that the book of Revelation is 30 years after Jesus started the church. And when you get to the book of Revelation 30 years later after the beginning of the church, five of the seven churches listed in the book of Revelation are in serious trouble. What are we going to do to make sure that that doesn't happen here? Howard Hendricks talked about the stages of an institution's life. He said the first stage is need. Some of you have been around uh, for a long time here. My wife and I came to this church in 1990, and, and that decade of the 90s was characterized by need. We knew there was a need, and so we had to sacrifice, and there was a lot of servanthood because there was a need for a church to go out and do something in the community. And some of you are around for that. And then in, about 10 years ago, we're getting ready to celebrate 10 years on this corner in Orland. About 10 years ago, 2002, we moved over to this corner over here. And I believe that's kind of what started stage two, Hendricks said, which is growth. Most institutions go out of some kind of crazy growth time, a time of vitality. And, and, and for us, the last 10 years have seen us go from averaging 600 a weekend in attendance to 6,000 a weekend in attendance. Six out of the last nine years, we've been one of the 100 fastest growing churches in the country. Okay? That was a season of growth for us. And they're characterized by high demand for sacrifice and everybody still being in that need place. But stage three is the stage of acceptance. That's when most institutions level off and they start to become happy with who they are and their reputation and their status. And it's harder to get people to sacrifice because they're already, you know, all, this good thing, all these good things going on. And I have to ask myself, is that where we're at now? I mean, we're one of the largest churches in the country now, but we haven't been one of the fastest growing in the last couple of years. I mean, we've grown, but we haven't been on that list where we've just been blowing up anymore and is that because we've gotten to this stage of acceptance where everybody's just like, well, it's big enough, it's cool enough, there's enough people here, I, they don't need me? That's not really the big problem. Stage three is not the problem. Stage four is the problem. Stage four is demise. When an institution gets to the acceptance stage, the only place for them to go is down, demise. And they start thinking about no vision for the future. They start thinking about the past a lot. They say those seven last words of any institution, we've never done it that way before. Right? There are a lot of churches out there that are in this stage of demise and they don't even know it. They're just really wasting the time and the resources of the people that are going because they're not really doing anything for the kingdom. This is harsh, but I agree with Oswald Chambers. Any church that is not seriously involved in helping to fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. 
Because the main thing is to fulfill the Great Commission, to reach the lost, to make disciples. That's the main thing. And as the poster says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And a lot of churches have forgotten that. So how do we do that? How do we stay on track? How do we stay in that, in that stage of need and growth so that we're continually reaching out? Well, for us, it means going back to the book of Acts and looking at how they did it. That's what we've been doing this whole month of August, going back to the book of Acts, because if it was good back then, then it must be good now. I read about a guy who was arrested for selling Fountain of Youth pills, and the prosecutor said to the judge, he said, Judge, you need to throw the book at this guy. This is not his first offense. He was also arrested in 1980, 1936, 1879, 1823. Hey, if it works, stick with it, okay? So we go back to the book of Acts, Acts, and Jesus says, here's what's going to happen, all right? I'm getting ready to leave you. I'm getting ready to go off to my father, and here are your marching orders. Here's how I want this to happen. You will be my witnesses. I just want to camp on this one verse today. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay? I blogged about this last week on my blog. I mean, I would encourage you to go back and read it. I've really been intrigued by this verse lately, really fired up by it. As a matter of fact, I'm leading a national convention in 2014, and this whole thing, this whole idea of keeping the main thing the main thing is going to be the theme of our convention because there are 6,000 churches represented in this place, and most of us need to continue to realize what's the most important thing. What are the marching orders to keep the main thing the main thing? Let me break it down says, first of all, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Where are they? They're in Jerusalem, okay? What he's saying is, first thing I want you to do is I want you to be about the people that are around you. Why is that important? Because you would think that the United States of America was a Christian nation, but that's just not true anymore. It's just not true. There are 109, George Barnes says there are 195 million unchurched people in the United States of America. Just by themselves, they would be the fifth largest nation in the world. And researchers and analysts are telling us now, I said fourth a couple of weeks ago, they're telling us now that the United States of America is the third largest mission field in the world. As a matter of fact, um, they, um, the last statistic I could find from the World Encyclopedia of Christianity said that America sent out 118,000 missionaries that year, but received 33,000 missionaries that year. We're becoming a new mission field. Secularization in the United States of America, meaning no religious worldview whatsoever, has gone from 15% of our population in 1950 to 40% of the population in 2000, to 60% in 2010. People who say, well, I might have a belief in God, but it's not going to affect the way that I live. 900 churches in Chicago have closed in the last 10 years. Now they're condos or restaurants, or they tear them down to do something else. As a matter of fact, I have a son-in-law from England. England in the 1800s and the 1900s, was the missionary-sending society nation in the world. They sent out missionaries all over the world, right? Today, in England, there are more mosques than there are churches. And and my friends, I believe that that's happening to the United States. I believe that that's what's going on all around us. So we need to start with our Jerusalem, 
Okay, We're going to do missions. We're going to do the uttermost parts of the world. That's always going to be what we're about. But we need to not forget that we're supposed to be witnesses in Jerusalem. And again, if you weren't here the first week, a witness is just somebody who doesn't have all the answers. I don't know the answers, but I once was blind and now I see. If you're tattooed by Jesus, that means that you, you're a witness. Okay, And it starts here. In John, Jesus said, the Father has sent me and I'm sending you. We're supposed to be sent. Paul says, what does that look like? Paul says, the most important thing that I do is complete my mission. What's my mission? Well, it's that work the Lord gave to me. What was that? To tell people the good news about God's grace. That's what we're supposed to do. And I believe if Jesus was here right now, and we said, oh, Jesus, we want to go follow you, he would probably turn around to us and say the same thing he did to the guy he healed in Luke chapter 8. When he said, you know what? I want you to follow me, but I don't, you're not going with me right now. I want you to go home and tell how much God has done for you. That's it. That's the, that's the simple beginning. So the man went all over town telling how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus says, I want it to start with Jerusalem, with your coworkers, with your neighbors. And you're like, well, they don't care about spiritual things. That's not true, people. Every stat I read, every, every statistic I read from anybody is telling me that people are more interested in spiritual things now than they ever have been before. They, they, they don't want you to beat them over the head with the Bible, but they want to have a conversation. Matter of fact, the statisticians tell me that a quarter to a half of those 200 million non-church people that are out there in the world said that they would go to church on any given weekend if somebody would just invite them. So I'm telling you, go to your Jerusalem, go get a popcorn packet to invite them to the story, and go back to your Jerusalem and be a witness. That's what we've got to do. Not, not be a prosecuting attorney, not being a salesman, just be a witness. I'll read you my favorite witness story ever. When my daughter Rachel was in uh, college, she went to England to help start a campus ministry over there, and she started a dialogue with this guy who was a brilliant computer guy who was working on his master's in computer security at the time, could hack his way in anything you need. Um, this is before he crossed over, but he's in the process of thinking about Jesus as a guy from England with no religious worldview whatsoever, and he's very smart. He said, listen, when I met you, I could have and have in the past given you hours of justification for why I hate religion. I could have reeled off a list and put you as a religious fanatic in your place. And had you come at me and challenged why I hate religion and pity people who believe in God and Jesus, I would have put you in your place. And no offense, but I probably would have come along looking pretty smug for my excellent arguments and rational victories of logic. But you didn't come at me. You just went ahead and showed me that it was all bull, naughty word, and that most of my facts are just opinions wrapped in justification. He said, the best analogy I can think of is kind of biblical, but I'm going to risk it. It's like I spent years building these foundations to stand on. And people would say, hey, your foundations are looking pretty rubbish. And I'd throw stuff at them and tell them to bugger off because they were just standing in the mud. But then you walked up, and instead of pointing fun at my rubbish foundations, you just walked over and stood on a rock. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, hang on, she's not saying it, but that, requir that rock required no building whatsoever. And it looks sturdier than my foundations. And you haven't got to say a thing because I can see the damned rock. And he eventually became a Christ follower. And then her boyfriend, and then her husband, and now will be the father of my grandchildren. And he's cleaning up his mouth, but otherwise he's doing... <laughs> He's doing incredibly well on this journey, and he's not been argued into the kingdom. 
He could see the dumb rock. He was just witnessed into the kingdom. So who's in your Jerusalem? Let me ask you this question. Do you realize why your heart is still beating today? Do you ever think about this? I mean, the world is okay. It's an okay place. God is still here with us. But there are hurricanes and there's shootings and there's death and there's disease and decay. And there's only one reason why God left you here on this earth after you gave your heart to Jesus. If you haven't done that yet, then he's waiting on you. But if you've given your heart to Jesus, there's only one reason he's left you here. I love the way Rick Warren says that. He says, there's only two things that you cannot do in heaven. You ready for this? I mean, you can sing in heaven, you can pray in heaven, you can fellowship in heaven, you, you can serve God in heaven, and we will. There is golf in heaven, Cubs win in heaven, everything in heaven is perfect, okay? But there are two things, Rick Warren says, you can't do in heaven. Sin or tell people about Jesus. Which one do you think he left you here to do? Isn't that good? Which of those things? I mean, he didn't leave you here to sin. He knows you're going to. He knows you're imperfect. But the only reason your heart is beating is because, according to 2 Peter, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to be lost, but he wants everyone to change their hearts and lives. The reason that he has not come back yet is because he's waiting for everybody who has an opportunity to come to him. Because sometimes people ask me, well, man, look around. Is this place big enough? Is this church big enough? I looked back at some, I usually say it was big enough for me about 10 years ago, honestly, but I looked at some old uh, sermons when I talked about this subject this week, and it was kind of ironic. I looked back at 1995, and I said, in 1995, I said, people ask us about our motivation. Why do we want more people to come? Why do we want more people to be involved in, in the ministry of Parkview? In 1995, I said, wasn't 392 people for Easter enough? In 2004, I read that again, and I, and I said, won't 2,392 people be enough this Easter? In 2012, I would say, wasn't 12,392 people enough for Easter? I had to preach nine times. Wasn't that enough? No, it's not enough. And it never will be enough. Okay, because there are people around us that need him. And the reason that our heart is still beating is because we're supposed to be witnesses. I love what C.T. Studd says. He says, some wish to live within the sound of the chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue mission a yard from the gates of hell. That's me. That's my vision. That's Parkview. Okay, so that's who we're going to be. The wrong question is not how big should we get. The The wrong question is how big should we get. The right question is who should be left behind. And I think any church that says, you know what, we're big enough, we got enough people here, we don't need anybody else as a part of our little club, is basically saying to the world, you can all go to hell. I'm in, best of luck to you. Like the two little kids that were talking one day, and the one kid said, all you need is Jesus to go to heaven. And the other kid said, you mean if I tell my mom she can go to heaven too? And that first kid said, yeah, and if you don't want her there, just don't tell her. That's our mission, okay? Our mission is to be a witness. Tell your mom, okay, please. Uh, Number one, I must reach to my world. Number two, I must dare to reach beyond my world, okay? Because he said, you're my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and Samaria and the othermost parts of the world. Judea and Samaria and the othermost parts of the world were, were the uncomfortable places, the places where you might feel a little bit out of place, where maybe your hands are going to have to get dirty because you're going to have to serve somebody, because you're going to have to get out of your comfortable spot and go to an uncomfortable spot. 
I did that this week on the plane back from L.A. I sit next to a woman, and I started talking to her about Jesus. And she was really receptive, and we had this great conversation about Jesus. And do you know where she is today? She's sitting right back there. Would you stand up? I'm just messing with you. <laughs> oh, they clapped this service. I love that. Oh, man, I love doing that. That's one of my favorite things. I was sitting next to my wife. But for a minute there, you were like, oh, our pastor is such a holy man. He talks to people. Weren't you? You're like, oh, way to go, Tim. Hey, let me ask you something. Why can't you do that? Why can't you get just a little bit uncomfortable and go talk to somebody about Jesus? Paul said, uh, whatever I, the person is like, I try to find common ground with him so that he will let me tell him about Christ and let Christ save him. There's a pretty easy way to be able to do that. You just share as a witness, but it may be a little uncomfortable for you. In other words, I'm going to build bridges with people that I don't know. For a Jew to go into Samaria, that was, that was not kosher, okay? That, that, that was uncomfortable, What does that translate like for us? I think for us what that means is going to people that we need to serve, okay? Because when you read the Bible, the people that Jesus hung out with were the underdogs, right? The powerless, the poor, the aged, the widowed, the challenged. That's who he went to. That's why, I I mean, the the whole reason we're called Parkview, I I know you're like, where'd you come up with that name? It was really dumb. It was like we moved from Tinley Park to Orland Park, and so we wanted Park in there, and so we started, you know, we thought South Park doesn't work very good, and so (laughs) I wanted that one, but nobody would go for it. Somebody came up with Parkview thinking maybe someday we'll have a view, and we came up with it. But but the thing that we liked about it when somebody came up with the Parkview name was that Parkview in in a lot of circles has a medical connotation. You know, I go to Parkview Orthopedics to work on all my old age things that I have going on and and Parkview Medical Center. And my parents actually volunteer for a hospital over in Fort Wayne, Indiana, this giant hospital called Parkview Hospital. I took my picture in front of their sign the other day. I'm wondering if the village of Orland would let us put one up like that out of here on Wolf. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I love the hospital analogy because that's really what this is all about. And that's where our hands start to get involved. We're witnesses, but our hands have to get involved. Jesus says that one day we're going to go to heaven and he's going to separate us as the sheep from the goats right? And the sheep, the good people and the bad people. And he's going to say, well, how do we get in one category or the other? Jesus says, well, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And we'll be like, well, Jesus, when did we do that? And he said, whatever you got your hands involved, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers or sisters, you've done it for me. That's when you've done it. It's about breaking out of our self-centeredness and our comfort. It's going to cost you money and time and energy to get your hands involved. But that's what we're called to do, to go to Jerusalem, our people, and then outside of our comfort zone, the the, the Judea and the Samaria, the other most parts of the world. I read a story written by Elizabeth Sherrill from New York. She was uh, looking out her window one day, working on her computer, and she noticed a skunk going across her yard, which is always, you know, a little bit alarming But this skunk looked a little funny, and as she looked at it, she realized there was something yellow on this skunk's head, like a helmet. And as she looked a little bit closer, she figured out that it was a yogurt carton, that this skunk had been licking the inside of a yogurt carton and gotten it stuck on his head. And he's running around bumping into things, and he doesn't know where he's going, and he can't get this yogurt carton off. So she thought to herself, 
Somebody ought to do something about that. You know? Somebody besides me ought to do something about that. So she called the government, which is always so helpful. She called the Department of Wildlife. And she said, hey, there's this skunk in my backyard with a yogurt carton on his head. What should I do? And the man said, you need to remove the yogurt carton. She said, well, thanks, but, but what if the skunk sprays me? What do I do then? And the man said, well, you're fine, because if the skunk can't see you, he can't spray you. Yeah, but what about when I take it off his head? And there was a moment of silence, and the man said, well, do your best not to make the skunk feel threatened. So she thought, well, okay, somebody's got to do something. So she walked outside, and she couldn't find him. She couldn't find him, looked around. Finally, she turned around, and there he shot by, and she just instinctively reached as he was wandering through her yard, reached out and grabbed the hold of him and pulled the yogurt carton off his head. And she said they did this eye contact thing for about 10 seconds, and she tried not to make him feel threatened. I don't know what I do. I don't know what you do. And it worked. And he ran off, and and she did not ever see him again. But she wrote about it later. I love what she wrote. She said, A timeless parable played itself out. That skunk was all the needs that I hesitate to get involved in. Because involvement takes time, and I've got deadlines to make, and I probably can't do anything anyway, and somebody else can handle it better. Besides, involvement can be ugly, and the stench may rub off on me. And all those things, of course, may be true, she writes. But I've got a yellow pencil holder on my desk a rather scratched and battered yogurt carton that I use to remind me every day that every now and then God needs to answer a need with me. So they did that in the early church. They met together. They were hands to the Jerusalem. They were hands, and they had anybody that had need, they shared with them. And they, were, they were outside of their comfort zone in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And what do you think happened? Well, the church blew up. I mean, they went from 120 to thousands of people in a few short months. It just was crazy. In the old days of the waiting rooms when uh, husbands couldn't go in with their wives when they were having babies, there were three guys waiting there one day, and, and the nurse came out to the one guy and said, Congratulations, sir, you've had twins. And he's like, Wow, that's, a, that's ironic. I work for the Minnesota Twins. Pretty soon the nurse came out to the second guy and said, Congratulations, you've had triplets. And he said, Wow, that's crazy. I work for 3M. And the third guy got up and ran out and said, I work for 7UP. I'm out of here. <laughs> Because whenever you blow things up and it, it, it magnifies like that, you're going to have problems. And guess what happens? You go from Acts 1 to Acts chapter 6, and all of a sudden it goes from all these great stories about all the great things going on to the fact that they're having growth problems. In Acts chapter 1, listen to this, Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, okay, that's the biblical definition of a church. It ought to be growing. The Hellenistic, these are the Greek Jews, among them complained that the Hebrew Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, started to become grumblings of growth problems. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, you know what, we can't handle all this. We, it would not be right for us to neglect a ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will keep our attention on the prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen and Philip and a bunch of other guys, and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And what happened? When the ministry spread out, 
the word of God spread, and a large number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The first thing that you're supposed to do is reach out to your world. The second thing that you're supposed to do is reach out beyond your world. And the third thing you need to do is get involved in your local church body. You get involved in your local church body. I mean, mean, what we've got to have happen around here is we've got to have you get involved and help us out, okay? A growing church is always going to have problems. And you ask us, well, do you have problems at Parkview? No, not really. We just need more space, more parking, more money, more leaders, more workers. Other than that, everything is great. But don't let it panic you. That should be a good sign to you. If you ever go to a church and they say, you know what, we really don't need any more help around here, they're dead. They've forfeited their biblical right to exist. Yeah, we're going to have problems. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we're going to start bugging you to get out of the 11 o'clock service. Yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to need your help. We need you to sign up because we need, you, we, we, we need to reach more people, and it's going to be problems. I'll tell you, when, when this church was small and not growing, and we were having to try to figure out how to retool ourselves so that we could reach out, I used to look at pastors of large churches and think, man, it must be nice to be them. They must have it so easy. they got all these things going on. And now that I am that guy, I realize that's really not true. I would rather have growth problems and stagnation problems any day, but growth brings problems. I was sitting in Rick Warren's office on Monday morning. I was thinking to myself, imagine being this guy. I mean, I can't imagine the the, the things that have to go on there. The the deal is, what happened in the book of Acts is, the the pastors started off doing everything, and they got to Acts chapter 6, and they realized, you know what, needs are going to be neglected. And the same thing's going to happen here. If you're waiting to get counseled by me, if you're waiting for me to show up and see you at the hospital, if you're waiting for me to take care of your problem, things are going to get bottlenecked, and it's not going to go very well. Okay, I just want to tell you that. They figured that out in Acts chapter 6, and they said, hey, how about if every member is a minister? How about if we spread this out to everybody, and everybody gets involved? Because there is no priesthood. The priesthood is of all believers in the Bible. That's what it tells us. So everybody's supposed to jump in and get this done. No one person can do it by themselves. Michael Jordan couldn't have won by himself. Jay Cutler can't win by himself. Soriano can't win well, I'll just leave that alone. They came up that, and they got to this point where they realized that we need everybody together or this isn't going to work. So they came up with this formula and they said, how about if everybody does it together? If everybody is a member, we will concentrate on preaching and teaching and praying and the ministry of the word and we'll spread this out to everybody else. And this proposal pleased the people. And so what happened? When everybody got involved again, the word of God spread again and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. That's what happens when everybody gets involved. We need you to get involved. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you didn't grow up in a a church. Maybe you were in a large parish where your parents weren't really involved and you've never even seen this model. It doesn't matter. Our example is the book of Acts where everybody got involved. Our example is Jesus Christ who got down on his knees and washed the disciples' feet in that very last meal. So what I'm asking you to do, you've got another card in your bulletin this week. This is find your role in the story. I want you to take that out for a second. This is where your hands come into play. 
we're getting ready to do the story and we're going to need more volunteers. We need hundreds of volunteers every weekend here to do things like lighting and parking lot and, and tech and, and, and serving and kids and, and communion and all the things that happen around here. Uh, so we want to ask you to think about doing something. Okay, if you check this box, you're not signing up for 31 weeks. You're still signing up through Christmas and you don't even know what you're going to do yet. Somebody's going to contact you. Just put your information in here and, and put it in the offering basket as a goes by or hand it to somebody on the way out or talk to somebody back at Volunteer Central because we need your help. Maybe you can do Kids Connection or Adult Weekend Services or you don't even know. Let somebody talk to you. I want to encourage you to jump in because the only way the number of disciples will increase in Jerusalem rapidly is if we're all witnesses, we all get our hands dirty, and we all get involved. Some wish to live within the sound of the chapel bell. But at Parkview, we're going to run a rescue mission a yard from the gates of hell. And it's going to be messy. It's not going to be easy. But that's what God has called us to do. So I ask you one last time. What time is it? On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station building was no more than a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With little to no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money and effort to support the work. New boats were brought in and new crews were trained and the little life-saving station group. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they began to use it sort of as a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decor, and there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners. The beautiful new club was in chaos immediately. The property committee hired someone to rig up a shower outside the club where victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. The outsiders made the life-saving station extremely dirty. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt that they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club but a small number of members insisted upon life-saving as their primary mission and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. After all, the dissenting group's members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club and yet another life-saving station was found. History continued to repeat itself, 
and if you visit that eastern seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the passengers drown. You probably noticed by now we put the big heart together back behind me. This is our little art project we did for August where people just sign their names to this thing. We put it together. That line in there is what we brought this all together for. Break my heart so that it moves my hands and feet. That's what, that's what I'm praying that God does at Parkview in the next few weeks as we get ready to gear up for this uh, crazy season of ministry where people are going to find him in new ways and I just really believe that, that his spirit is upon us and that things are going to happen that, that, that are just like the book of Acts, just biblical proportions. I believe that and uh, we need you to be a part of it. We're going to have communion just like the early church did as well. When they gathered together, they had communion, they broke bread together. We're going to do that and for us, this sacrament is a time for you and Jesus to connect. So let's spend some time doing that together. Lord, I pray that you be with those who came today needing a hospital. They needed Parkview to be a place that had beds available and, and nurses and, and people to help, help them to find the great physician. And Lord, I know that you are the great physician and we want them to connect with you. They don't need us, they need you. But I pray that we will be that place that can come around them, as we already have with hundreds of people, that we will be the place to come around them and help them to find you and that you will speak into their life, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, whatever kind of healing that it is, that you will help them, that you will heal them and you will show them that you're there. There are some who came today not knowing you at all, not having a relationship with you. Um, maybe they don't even know if they do. Lord, this is the time for them to just say, hey, Jesus, I'd like to start that journey. I would like to know you. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I, I need you in my life. I believe in you. For the rest of us, uh, we need you to break our hearts today so that we'll move our hands and our feet so that this church and that the churches across the world will step up and be the people that you need us to be so that everyone can come to faith in you especially those people in our Jerusalem, Lord, especially those people in our Judea and Samaria and the people that we can touch in the uttermost parts of the world, be with us. As we take communion right now, we're thankful that you gave us the example of who, who it is that we're supposed to be and we're supposed to follow you. So show us in Jesus' name.